Welcome to Market Scale Retail. I'm your host, Sean Heath, and today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Maya Bittner, the co-founder for Pinch. Maya, how are you today? I'm good. How about yourself, Sean? I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. Do me a favor. I'm always impressed by people who found something. And by found, I mean create something. You you see an issue and you decide, oh, this is not going to happen. And then you approach or find an approach to solve. A lot of times it's an issue people may not have even generally realized was an issue. Tell me about your journey that brought you to found or co-found Pinch. Certainly. So when we started, we were looking at financial stability in the United States. And particularly the problem we saw is financial shocks would happen to people. So these are things that are for most people about $100 to $500. And they happen kind of out of the blue. You don't plan. So it's stuff like getting your car towed. And it really starts a downward spiral for many people if they don't have savings. What we see is that their car gets towed. You don't have $500 to get your car from the impound lot. So then you can't drive to work. And then you really don't have $500. And it goes downhill from there. So we were looking at how to solve this problem. Our naive best guess was actually an insurance product because we thought random bad things happen. Is there a way we can use insurance to prevent about this? And we realized that the best solution was actually having access to affordable credit. So if you could take out a loan at the time your car gets towed, use that to get your car, and then you can continue on going to work and slowly pay off that loan. When we dug into it, we realized that many Americans, particularly millennials, don't have access to affordable credit. And it's because their lifestyle has changed in a way that the credit bureaus haven't caught up with. Now, they're buying houses and cars later in life and less often. Uh, They're shying away from using credit cards and even traditional bank accounts. And so the end result is that they're poorly scored, but not because they're bad credit risks. It's only because they've had a lifestyle change that hasn't been recorded. And that's when we found that the credit bureaus actually do incorporate rent payments into their credit scores. They have for about eight to 10 years now, but it's only been an enterprise product. So if the landlord that you have and the building you rent from doesn't happen to report, then you're out of luck. What we wanted to do with Princh is we wanted to bring that functionality to everyone so that everyone could use their rent payments to build up their credit score and help ensure financial stability by bringing that access to affordable credit. All right. So this, so many amazing questions just popped into my head. Hopefully the noise doesn't scare you. Um, It seems as if the current credit approach can't apply accurately because not only has the economy started to go through a change towards a very large gig economy or sharing economy, but society is changing as well in the way that you've determine the trustworthiness of an individual financially, that has to change as well, right? I mean, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's lagging behind a little bit, but it does need to to update to be accurate. So that's an interesting problem that you have because how can you measure somebody's dependability when they live a largely cash gig-driven 
career lifestyle? How, how do you quantify that number or create a score for a person who works in a largely cash-based existence? Certainly. So there are a lot of problems with it. Historically, as you know, people had more steady incomes um, and you could predict the amount of money that they're making every month easily because it's the same amount of money. When we look at people who have more variable income from 1099 jobs, what we're looking for is how much income can we still predict? So even though they're not making the same paycheck every two weeks, um, we look at how much work is available for them and how much they're, they have the bandwidth to pick up um, so that we can still estimate their cash flow. And here at Pinch, we're using some um, predictive algorithms and some really intelligent technology behind that in order to translate the variable income to get something predictive. It's not as easy as when you have a job and you can say, well, I've made $1,500 every paycheck for the past year and I plan on continue doing that. Um, but it is still possible using technology and using the software that we've built. The other thing is the best indication of someone's ability to meet their liabilities is whether they've met their liabilities in the past. It always has been. And so that's why we're so excited about rent. Um, rent is taking on a liability and how someone pays rent, if it's on time, if it's in full, uh, the type of place that they're renting, how often they switch apartments, all of this can be evidence that you can trust this person with a loan um, because they have evidence of meeting their liabilities. You know, one thing that I've always compared currency to is it's an advanced form of bartering. Uh, let's say back in the 1700s in the United States that you had uh, some butter and I had some corn. I need butter to put on my corn and you'd like some corn to put your butter on. So we trade equal amounts and we decide, oh, well, for this stick of butter, I need six ears of corn. We, you and I negotiate the exchange rate and that evolved into the exchange, the exchanged item not being necessarily the goods, but being a physical representation of the value of those goods, meaning currency. Are people starting to maybe break down that currency exchange to a more personal level uh, with with regards to an individual's uh, reliability for their financial obligations? Well, are you asking if um, we're we're kind of going closer to bartering and less of this mediated currency world? Yes, that's the, exactly the question, but I didn't ask it nearly as intelligently as you've raised it. I wanted to make sure I understood. So um, we do see that. And, you know, most of the technology at Pinch is around verifying someone's liabilities and in what form they're meeting them. And through this process, we do see a ton of bartering and it's very interesting. So uh, one, of our, one of our customers, she pays her landlord rent. Um, she pays her landlord rent on a weekly basis, but she gets $100 off for every week that she cleans her landlord's apartment. And so it's this interesting kind of exchange where she can create cheaper rent for herself. But really, you know, historically, we would have used cash for this, you would have gotten paid $100 for cleaning the apartment, 
and then you could use that hundred dollars towards your rent. But people are just meeting, um, meeting in the middle here. And I think that one of the things I was surprised by, and I'm actually really heartened by, is how flexible landlords are around this. Most people rent from individual landlords. These are mom and pop landlords. They're not huge companies, and in general, the landlords are also they're you know they're just trying to make their way in the world, and they're happy to negotiate to on the rent to get other things that they want, whether it's house cleaning, whether it's mowing the lawn, doing repairs around the unit, things like that. Um, and I think that's exciting. You know, the economy is still, we know that jobs haven't returned to where they once were, and particularly wage growth has stagnated in the United States. And so to see these kind of informal jobs being created, um, like mowing the lawn and like doing maintenance, I think is is really exciting and a really good sign. That's a really interesting way to commodify that transaction. It's still a, a exchange of value, but it's a hybrid value. Some of it is in currency. Some of it is in actual work. That's a really interesting trend. Are there some other trends that you've seen over the past year or so that have really caught your attention? You know, I think um, one of the things that I was surprised by, uh, though I feel naive for not knowing this, is just how many people don't have a traditional checking account. We see about 30 to 40% of our customers don't have this traditional checking account and instead they use a prepaid debit card. So even if they get a paycheck, um, whether it's 1099 or W2 work, that paycheck gets loaded directly onto their debit card and then they spend it. And how I've talked to them about their spending is that they'll go to the store and they bring things to the cash register and then they swipe their debit card. And if they don't have enough money to make that purchase, the debit card will decline the transaction and they can't make it. Um, and maybe they'll return some things or maybe they just won't make that purchase. And this is a very crude way to do budgeting. But you know what? It's also very low cognitive overhead and it's extremely effective. So our customer base is never going into debt. They're not getting overdraft fees. They don't have to check their balance all the time and manage their money. They always spend within their means because they're using this debit card to regulate their spending that way. They love that the fees on the debit card are so clear. They know exactly how much each transaction is going to cost them. Unlike traditional banks, which will be, they'll have monthly fees that are waived if you have a certain amount of balance on average over the month, or if you get a certain number of deposits throughout the month, um, and they have gnarly overdraft fees. And so that was one of the trends that I was most surprised by is just people's, really their enthusiasm for prepaid debit cards and how well it's working as a tool to manage their finances. You know, an additional interesting uh, fact about that is that displays a, an incredibly high degree of discipline. Uh, credit and overdraft fees and, and all of the sort of connected costs that come with living in a credit-based society allow you to be relatively lazy. You don't have to stay on top of your on top of your finances because oh it's an overdraft fee they'll put it in they'll charge it I pay a little bit later but that immediate approach of the direct placement of your funds on your debit card 
that actually takes work. That takes effort. That is anything but a lazy approach to your financial health. Exactly. It's very deliberate and very uh, educated. We find that our customers are very knowledgeable about exactly how much money they have um, on their debit card, how much every fee will cost them and where their money's going. So let's talk about when you get to a situation where you absolutely need to use credit. Do you find that the rates based on something other than a traditional credit score, do you find there's a fairness associated with those? There is. So this all depends on the person. Um, one of the best metrics of of your rate and your your relative risk is how much your income is. And so for customers who have high income but aren't scored well by the traditional credit bureaus, um, a good example of these are many uh, immigrants who work as uh, software engineers. They have very high incomes, but they don't have that credit history that would score them well. Um, there are some scores that if they're looking at their income, then they're going to be scored much more fairly and much more accurately than if they're looking at their traditional credit score. Um, in other situations, uh, the rates can can really be variable. And, you know, we find with our customers that they've been kind of burned by many lenders. And rather than getting the predatory rates from lenders, they've shied away and they focus more on borrowing money from their friends or even selling possessions or kind of hustling up money in an emergency through other ways than credit. You know, you've taken on a pretty large challenge. Basically, you're remaking an entire industry from a startup, which is incredibly um, adventurous, but it's brave and it's it's pretty noble, actually. Tell me about some of the challenges that you specifically have to face when you take on a task that is this monumental. You know, I think the actual hard part of it is balancing the monumental big vision with the nitty gritty and the little tasks that you're doing. So um, I spend a lot of my day talking to investors or talking to business development partners and creating this grand new vision of a world in which we can like score people fairly and provide them access to affordable credit despite their preferences and the changes in the economy um, that have happened over the last couple of years. And then I'll immediately take the subway back to my office. And uh, last week, you know, my team and I, we repainted the conference room in the office because um, it was looking pretty bad and I was embarrassed to have meetings there. So we got out the drop cloth and we taped up the trim and we got the paint and we got rollers and brushes and painted the conference room, opened up all the windows to kind of get some fresh air in here. And then I'm back to doing pitch meetings. And that's, that's a lot of, um, a lot of the challenges is really going back and forth between, okay, you know, we have this bad review from a customer that fell through the cracks in this way. And how are we going to delicately handle this one very nuanced situation. And then from my perspective, I'm like, how do I give the support to my customer service managers so that they can build the scalable system and um, 
ensure that it's successful for many years to come and kind of architect that and then flip back and forth. So that's the challenge for me is that I think it's both bigger picture and more details than many people work with. And being able to straddle both is the hardest part of my job. When you create such a large mission statement to address such an important issue as you have, you obviously are going to run into some growing pains. I would imagine building customer trust is obviously that's job one, but also creating a seamless distribution, finding uh, the opportunity to integrate the pinch app and the powers that come with that into other opportunities. I would imagine you probably are looking at several other ways that you can leverage the power of pinch, so to speak. Can you tell me without spilling any secrets uh, that would get either of us in trouble? Can you tell me a little bit about some of the things you hope to accomplish in the future or some of the approaches that you think pinch can really be successful in moving forward? Yeah, exactly. So we really believe in the power of rent reporting to change people's lives, change their financial opportunities, and really bring an amount of financial justice to many Americans. And so our focus is right now on bringing it to the most number of people possible. Now, we do have the Pinch app, uh, but I want to integrate this into wherever people are already living their financial lives rather than making them download a new app and enter in all their information and have a new relationship and sign up there. So I think reporting your rent payments, you know, it's part of a, a balanced and healthy breakfast or whatever the phrase is. It's should be a part of a bigger financial product. So whether that's a bank where you manage your savings, um, one of the new banks on your phone like Chime, if it's a savings app like Long Game, I think there are a ton of cool new companies that are creating uh, healthy financial ecosystems and that if they had rent reporting as an asset, it would make their product so much more valuable to their customers because they play off each other. You know, it's if you have a lending company and we can increase your credit score, it widens the number of customers that you can sell your lending product to. So that's certainly, uh, a future area that we're in the process of investigating right now is how we can increase the distribution for rent reporting and bring it to as many Americans as possible. Now, we've talked about the technical side of it. I'd like to take a moment and flip over to the social side of your approach. You know, everybody loves tech. Everybody loves data. There's an awful lot of fatigue that comes along with that. And there's the potential for misusing the information that's gathered, but there's also the positive aspects of the tech and the data coming together and being used to address serious, realistic social issues. What exactly about the potential for pinch excites you with regard to the social good that it can do? Certainly. So rent payments has historically, you know, it hasn't been accessible and we're kind of in this funny position where uh, more affluent people have data about them that's more accessible and speaks to their credit worthiness. Um, 
than the average person. And so it's not necessarily that someone is less good at paying back their debts, just the information about them is less available and that lenders need to be conservative. You know, if they don't have information on you, um, they have to assume that you're, you don't have a high credit score. And so where you want to use, we want to bring this rent data online to kind of bring equal opportunities. I think you brought up a good point about privacy. And I think people are all very nervous right now um, about data and about privacy. And we're actually excited to take that stuff to the next level and make it more secure than it is today. So the credit bureaus operate um, with a lot of data and you know, there has been a specific leak in personal information um, by a credit bureau recently, and it's because they hold so much data. So we're excited about a future where it's more distributed and having all, all this data in one centralized place won't be a honeypot. Um, we think there's a variety of different methods that you can use to achieve this. Uh, you can also do tokenization so that there's less private information being shared all the time. This is a very long-term vision. Um, today, the credit bureaus use a file format that was invented in the 70s to do data furnishing and share data back and forth. And so while it's as, as secure as it can be, um, there are much more sophisticated methods that are available now that I think that we can start building in and use it to protect people's privacy and protect their personal information while making sure the right people have access to it. And we're excited about the idea of a consumer-friendly credit bureau that you can opt in and you can say, share my data with this person, this person, and this person, but not with this company and not with this other person and really have control over how your data is being used and only use it in situations where it benefits you. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I love when I have a chance to talk to somebody who teaches me something. So this has been a great day for me. I want to thank you for taking the time today. I've had the opportunity to have a conversation with Maya Bittner, the co-founder for Pinch. Maya, I wish you continued success, and thank you so much for taking the time. It was so fun chatting with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.